Hello, my name is Jen Hickey. Welcome to the WEN podcast, a series of conversations with people as they share their WEN moments. Recognizing these times can change our destiny, help us to stop hiding behind the past or clinging to a future that may or may not happen. This podcast is about recognizing the power of the WEN moments. In the final episode of this series, I'm chatting to best-selling author and inter-county herder, Tony Griffin. Tony has travelled the world working with teenagers before finally setting up SOAR in Ireland, the Teenage Foundation. We chat about Tony's experience working with thousands of teens over the last decade and his upcoming new book, The Teenage Book of Life. Enjoy. Welcome to the WEN podcast, Tony Griffin. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for giving me your time. So I'm literally going to jump straight in. You have written the most amazing book coming out in December called The Teenager's Book of Life. So I would like to just start by asking you, why did you write it? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it wrote me, to be honest. Um, I I was telling someone the other day that it's a a book that I wrote in five months, but it took 10 years to write. Um, Because, you know, I, I spent all from 2010, 11 till this year, and still am working with teenagers, something I never saw myself doing, you know. So I, I suppose the reason I feel it's now written is because I often used to say to myself when working with large groups of teenagers, everything from, you know, 15 to, to 120, when, when they'd start to speak really honestly about their lives and openly about how perhaps they feel judged, perceived, misunderstood, underestimated by adults in the world. And just the way they could be so eloquent when they felt they, were, they weren't going to be judged. I often used to say, I wish that kid's parent was in the room. Or I wish all the teachers in the school could be behind a kind of a, an invisible wall um, and hear this, because this is unbelievable. Um, and so because of that, I said I'd write something which kind of tied all the pieces of hearing thousands of teenagers say things about their life or tell stories about who they were. And I just felt I want to mirror that back to them. All the wisdom that I felt just blessed to hear, I want to mirror that back so other teenagers could read um, the book and also their parents and potentially be kind of a totem that parents parents and teenagers could use to say, let's talk about life on another level. Let's not talk about tools and tactics about how to how to um be in the world let's just talk about life and let's raise it up to a whole other level so so are you are you talking to parents in this book as the teenager or are you talking to teenagers about teenagers it's 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 like my version of life for teenagers based on listening to so many of them so like there's a chapter called your parents are idiots and then in i Brad, saw that yeah so are i love you, it <laughs> you know, because like, it's like, look, we're all idiots to some extent because we're all kind of stuck to this thing called earth, trying to figure out who we are, bumping up against life in certain ways, not knowing who we are. And we, we were sent through this funnel of a school system that if anything, it, it educates us away from knowing who we are. So life, life's not easy for, for those reasons. So the book is kind of like an elongated love letter to teenagers to kind of reassure them and say, look, it's going to be okay. Yeah, there's going to be shit times. There's going to be hard times. But overall, you're meant to be here. You have a reason to be here. And here's some things I've learned about life that you can take or leave. It's up to you. 
Um, but there's a lot of kind of illustrations throughout the book and I've tried to make it into something that a teenager could pick up, read a chapter when they feel they need it or a page, but it's left open on the table and then the parent picks up and go, Jesus, this guy's been really honest with these teenagers. Am I being honest enough with my teenager? So did you kind of find, you wrote the book um, and I mean, we're all trying to understand our teenagers, Jesus. So I've got three kids and two are coming out of the teens and one is heading straight in. And I'm as confused with this one as I was with the other two. And it's like a minefield. Um, what do you think the biggest misconception is that there is out there that we have as our, you know, about our kids or teachers have? I know I'm just launching these questions at mm. you, but, you know, I, I really struggle with trying to understand my, and I like to think that I'm open yeah. to approach, but maybe I'm not. Yeah, it's it's kind of goes back to your first question about why do you write the book is I think that one of the things we underestimate about teenagers, but then children and teenagers, is they're they're able for so much more than maybe we give them credit for. And it probably comes from a hangover of, you know, kids should be seen and not heard to an extent. And in a way, I think that they're I know they're able for so much more than we give them credit for. They're a lot more intuitive than we give them credit for. They're a lot wiser. Um, and they have a much better read on the world than we give them credit for. Sometimes they don't even know it. But I've heard them in, I remember one girl in a workshop once and her, one of her friends, a boy, had taken his own life. And, and, uh, and I just asked, how much have you talked about it as a group? You know, because that's a huge thing to happen in someone's life. And this girl who was like, you could see she was just waiting for her opportunity to talk. She says, we haven't. The school don't really know what to do, so they haven't talked about it. And I said to her and to the group, why do you think adults are, are so slow to talk to you about life in a real way, like really talk about life? And she's, and I'll never forget her answer. She said, because they're afraid of what we'll say. Afraid of what we'll say. Gosh, that's interesting, isn't it? Because in our naivety uh, as parents, and we all do it regardless, we, we think we're protecting them, I suppose, in some way by, you know, shielding them from knowing that somebody killed themselves. When in reality, it's something that is, needs to be, yeah spoken about and if you look, think of like Romeo and Juliet is about teenagers and it's dramatic and like at that stage in in all our lives whether we remember or not you know our brain was going through so much development our emotional centers were firing we were looking for excitement we we're looking for adventure we we're trying to define who we were and where we we're going to go so I have found the more honest you are with teenagers and the more you can kind of own your own you know it's a very often used word but your own kind of vulnerable worry and uncertainty that's what they connect with they don't connect with the act and that's why where mm. i think the rest of is they have us figured out and i say us i mean adults who try and and they're those adults are well-meaning and they're protecting themselves maybe they don't want to even understand what's going on inside them but the reason why i think i got to hear so much from teenagers in terms of the reality of their lives is because i didn't hold back and I said, you can like me or you can dislike me. And I used to often start the workshop by saying, I'm going to sit at the top of the room and I just want you to judge me. And, um, you know, a hundred kids looking at them saying, judge him. And then there'd be silence. And my heart would be racing. I'm saying, oh, I hope someone do doesn't pick out the things I'm insecure about or unsure about. And I just let the silence hang. And then they start to, and they were so on the money. Like they, I just walked in the room. And then an hour later, I'd say, now, how would you judge me? And, mm their judgments had kind of gone to a deeper level of you were real, you know, you're, you're honest, you seem very comfortable in your own skin. And I said, look, when I was your age, I was so uncomfortable in my own skin. I'd walk into a room and think the whole world was looking at me and saw my flaws. 
And that's what teenagers connect with. That, you know, that's what humanity connects with, not just teenagers. And do, you think, do you think as parents, so you mentioned earlier, we don't know how much they're capable of mm. or how much that, you know, they can understand. And I want, and, and obviously as parents, we're trying to protect our kids. But do you think that they, you know, they see straight through us in terms of, you obviously walk into a room, they open up to you eventually. We're coming in at perhaps all these kind of rules and regulations. And is that what you're talking about? And, and obviously we're talking about across all demographics. I, I want to get into, you know, some of the um, experience you've had with kids so that we can try and understand because I would love nothing more than, you know, to be able to understand what's going on in my 13-year-old's head. Yeah, I'm sure he would too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he would. And, you, know, you know, and I try this approach of, you know, calm, chatting and yeah. I'm usually met with a grunt which I know is normal now yeah. so I'm not offended like I don't, you know it's, it's grand but how do we connect with them how do we let them know that we know that we want to help or maybe we should just back off you know it's it's I, I think there's some it's such a kind of um paradox it's like where the sides look my children are five and five months so like I'll probably be ringing you for advice in 10 years <laughs> I'll be out the gate Tony I'll be gone yeah. I said, what do I do when I get the grunt and I want more because I need the connection, you know? Um, it's a funny one. Sometimes, you know, when I first started, work, started running workshops with large groups of teenagers in 2012, I'd go in all eager. Oh, let's just talk about it. And like, they kind of look at me, who is this guy? And I learned quickly that you need to kind of sneak up on them. Right. And kind of like, sneak up sounds like really, really scary, but you almost need to kind of, this is a good way maybe to describe it, with between two adults, me, you and I are, you know, meeting your think of your best friend, meeting for a coffee shop. You, like you can go everywhere in conversation in an hour. Like you can talk, it's all talk, talk, talk. Whereas when an adult is talking to a teenager, we need to kind of bear in mind that a few sentences of interaction with a teenager is like that hour long conversation with your friend in the cafe. So oh. it doesn't need to be a lot. That's what I, I like that. Yeah, you just. Like that. <laughs> You kind of drop it in like, uh, how's school? Cool, good, cool. And it usually is those monotone. Yeah, and cool. Yeah, grand. And then, you know, give them a little bit. Give, give, like, it's almost like sometimes we try too hard. There's going to be times you need to try hard, but it won't feel like trying because you'll just be being honest with them. It might be someone at work that really pissing me off. Like, I really, you know, this is how they make me feel about myself. What advice would you have for me? And I bet you the teenager will have good advice. But you've never asked them for their advice because we think the advice goes one way because we're wiser and we've lived longer. So like, I don't have any perfect ways to go about it. Only that I've learned over time with teenagers that you kind of you kind of throw them a crumb and they, they come for it. Yeah. The next day they want more because it felt nice, but you don't push it with them, you, especially in that age where they just kind of want to be left on their own to figure themselves out. The and, and there is, because actually, now that you mention it, one of the best ways we've discovered over the years of uh, just even starting a conversation is when you bring them somewhere in the car. Of course, yeah. Because I, I and I, I'm assuming it's because we're not sitting in front of them. They can't, they're not, they're not looking at us. We're kind of sitting beside each other. They're going somewhere, so they know they're getting out. Mm. Um, and it, it, so that, that does make sense then. It's not like they're standing there waiting for a grilling. Yeah. Yeah, and I talk about that in the book in one of the pieces about, you know, a girl is in the car listening to her mother saying, I wish I wish you'd just be quiet and leave me alone, stop asking me questions. And in the car right beside him at the traffic lights, there's a girl 
sitting saying to her, look like wishing for her mother to ask her a question. So there's no one way. Like it's, you've got to just kind of start to understand who am I dealing with? Like you probably know that one teenager is different. One child is different to another. Like they have a different soul print, not to talk about different fingerprints. So like, it's almost like the more comfortable we are in ourselves, the more we will connect. Because I remember, you know, a lot of the reasons why I think I enjoyed facilitating groups of teenagers so much is because like I'd gone, down, gone through a breakdown in 2008. I had gone through my darker period in my own life where I walked in and I was kind of like, I don't really have anything to prove to these guys. Like, I'm just me. Here I am. I'm transparent. And you can see through me and ask me anything. Whereas sometimes when facilitators will come on board out of nervousness, they try so hard to impress the teenagers. The teenagers go, nah, you're full of shit. Okay. And, Makes uh, sense. So how did you get into it then, Tony? So, so go back. I know, because I know you've written other books as well. Um, and did you always want to work with teenagers? You know, it's a, good, it's a good question, like, Jenny. I never really, you know, I grew up in the west of Ireland. I was one of the large family, seven. Around age 13, 14, I realized I really love this sport called hurling. And it's kind of something I'm, I'm good at. I can kind of get a bit of attention from. And then I kind of started a path of playing with Claire, uh, a team, and throughout my 20s. And I loved sport. I, lo- I love two things in school. I love the English um, and I love sport. And so I wanted to do physio. I didn't get the points. And then I did English in university. Um, and then I ended up leaving hurling and going to Canada to pursue that dream of doing sports science. And I went okay. to university in Nova Scotia where I knew no one. I was terribly homesick and it was brilliant because my ego took a batter and I wasn't a hurler anymore. I was just some stranger amongst thousands um, but it was the best experience ever because I got exposed to a lot of areas of life I'd never have been exposed to. And when my father died in 2005, I, I had an exam and I was studying for the exam and I was sitting across the table from this roommate who was a real character. And, and my sister rang me. I went to take the call and she said, Daddy has died. And, and I went back into the kitchen and Ben was sitting there across the table from me. And he says, everything okay? And I said, Daddy has died. And he burst into tears and... I ended up consoling him, you know, it's okay, it's okay. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was in a lot of pain. And so when I when I came home to Ireland after that, I didn't make it back in time, obviously, for him passing. And that really, really kind of... That's so painful. Me. And, you know, I had the most craziest of questions. How, what did he look like? You know, did he gasp? All these questions that were... I still haven't asked my brothers and sisters. They were all there, all six and my mother. So I, I think that, you know... I'm even looking, just staring into space and I'm looking at a picture of him and I on the wall and I kind of wanted to try and make him proud or do something in, mem- in his memory. So I decided to cycle a bicycle from one side of Canada to the other, from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean. And it was an amazing experience because on so many fronts, I'd never done anything like that. It went on to raise over a million euro for different Wow, amazing, fantastic. And in those days as well. Going all yeah. the way back, Tony, the, 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 you know, the dark ages when we didn't have our phones and our... Exactly. Our <laughs> stripe hadn't been... Incredible. <laughs> How old are we? Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Exactly. How old are we? But it, it taught me something. That whole experience taught me that. And I, it, and I tried to remember it when I was creating the book was, you know, when you go out on the edge and a bit of a precipice and do something that mean that, you know, even if it's only a whisper inside you says, this makes sense for you everyone else may not understand it. Like my family weren't big fans of the idea. 
A lot of people were against it, but I just kind of pursued it and it worked out. Um, but afterwards, I underestimated the toll. And I'm getting to why I work with young people. That's where I'm going. Okay, yeah. But I underestimated the toll that the physical um, challenge would take, would have on me. And also, I was meeting cancer sufferers every second day. They'd cycle out to meet me. They, they may be, you know, I've received news that they were they'd weeks left or they may just have lost a loved one. And they and I was a stranger. I was the stranger passing through town that would they'd spend a few hours with and they'd bawl their eyes out and they'd say, I can't talk to anyone else in my house like this. And so I was listening, listening. And when it was all over, it was like a tsunami. It just hit me. And I myself found that I had nothing left. And, and so you probably realized at that point you had not dealt with your father's passing. This was you were taken on board all yeah. these thinking this is great you're raising money it's giving you a focus giving you a purpose but like everything at the end it, it just, exactly. yeah it's so true and like uh, you know in a way i didn't run from i actually cycled a long way from the problem um, right and, and then there was days in the prairies of saskatchewan or you know in the rockies where i talked to him and i suppose i've always been curious about life and why we're here so i was asking him like are you there tell me give me a sign you're still or you're somewhere and where did you go? And I'm sorry I wasn't there at the end. And so, you know, there was a lot of tears shed on the way across that, that um, landmass. And when, when it, the, it did finally hit me, I just didn't know what to do because I was, the bit, I was seen as the hero guy. And all of a sudden, I, w- I couldn't leave my house. Then I couldn't leave my room. Um, I was still trying wow. to get through exams over in Canada. And, and was, this, was this a kind of anxiety or how would you describe it? It was like an overwhelm. So like, I had to go back and finish my exams and I'd, I had a lot of extra subjects to get through because when I was training for the cycle the year before, I put some classes on hold. So I had a huge workload ahead of me. We were still giving away this money, yet you know I was trying to f- struggle financially through the last year of university in, in Canada. So it was just overwhelming. I met this girl on the last day of the cycle, um, who's now my wife, but we were trying to do a long distance. I just felt like everywhere I looked, the walls were closing in on me. Um, so it went from, you know, being uncomfortable in, in lectures, like, I wish I could get out of here, to, you know, I, I don't want to go in today, to I don't want to leave my room, to I don't want to leave my bed, to I'm going to actually climb into the, the closet, which was big enough for me to lie in, because it was dark. Um, and then it got so bad that there was one evening I was walking back from a lecture and the, a bus was coming down the street. And I remember just thinking, this could be it. This is the best way to end the pain that I'm in. And I just stepped onto the street and then I stepped back off it. And I remember thinking, Jesus, Tony, there's something wrong. So I rang, I think we all have that one person that we feel won't judge us or we feel comfortable with. So I rang my sister and who is that person for me? And I just said, look, I'm really not in a good place. And so I came back home and started counseling. And like, it was, it was laughable, Jane, because I went to a counselor in Limerick and I was there like, what if the press see me? Like this man is so weak. And it was the best thing I ever did because through it, I started to do some of the work that I hadn't done on myself and with myself. And you, you mentioned earlier about to, um, having a relationship with yourself. And there's a quote in the book, the most important relationship you'll ever have in your life is with yourself. Every yeah. other secondary, because yeah. that's how what I found when I went to see that, that counselor. I, would, I just discovered things I, I didn't know about myself um, and what, why I was missing my father so much and regrets I had. And when I came out with that, I said to myself, I can't be the only person that has gone through this, but I've never met anyone that has. This is mm. 2000 and, 
um, eight, nine, no, mental health wasn't such an everyday conversation. So, and you were also a male. So you probably had that whole be strong, be a man, really? don't cry, you know, all of that. Yeah, 100%. I can't tell you the shame I felt going to counselling or the guilt I felt that I was having to have conversations with my mother about how I was feeling and just the absolute embarrassment that I could go from being someone that 5,000 people came to see cross the finish line to now having to just try and keep it together to get through the day. So as after that, I, I approached an organization called the Gaelic Players Association. So they, they represent GAA players in Ireland. And I said to them, I want to do something on mental health and men. And they said, we love that. Mm. And I had conversations with the HSC. And then the, the global financial crisis hit. And the HSC said, look, we don't have any money. So I sat in that for a while. And then I saw a documentary about Jim Steins, the Irish, Irish man who went and played Aussie Rules in Australia. And I swear... It was 2010, it was December, I uh, was living in Dublin and it was felt like something that documentary just went like, caught, kind of pulled me. Into it was for you, it was there for you. Oh, it was so there for me, but I was getting, I was in, about to get engaged, I didn't have a job, it was in the middle of the financial crisis um, and my father had left me a small amount of money that I bought a car with, so that's all I had was the car. And I remember thinking, it's the only thing I have of worth. I had loads of books I accumulated. I sold all the books. That got me like two weeks um, of living expenses. And But I wanted to get to Melbourne to study the organization that Jim Steins had created. And I said to myself one evening, Tony, this is it. This is the time. Do you, are you actually going to do this? So I sold the car and that funded me to go and study the work. Jim. Wow, amazing. Myself and another guy. And we went down and we just studied Jim was dying at the time. He died of cancer a year later. And oh, just, I know at 45, you know, I'm, oh, I'm 45 here. Geez, he was 45. Like, so he had built an incredible organization that was so futuristic in how it dealt with mental health. Because my research, when I was trying to get the, the men's mental health off the ground uh, two, three years before that, showed me, I just said to myself, okay, I'm a fairly open-minded guy and I was able to push myself to counseling. Most of the services I saw, I said, they're just not cool. They're just not like... They don't feel to me like young people, if they were like me and had a dark period, would jump at that. So I said, how can we make this thing called mental health cool? And I don't mean like... Yeah, oh, you know, look, and, and you'd wonder as well, and we'll talk about it, how, how much it's changed because there is still this taboo around mental health. Yeah, it's know. just so understood. Like, I think we've moved a long way, but we're only beginning in some ways. So you obviously saw something then out there that you thought, right, I'm going to bring this back. And instead of it just being focused on men, you were going to bring it back for teens. Yeah, it, it, it was a kind of a, looking back now, of course, the steps make sense and all the little dominoes fell in the right way. But at the time I was really, you know, stepping out on this kind of lake where I didn't know where the next little stone was going to come out of for me to step onto. It was just so uncertain because like, I had a lot of uncertainty, you know, I, I, I had nothing, you know, I had just recovered from this period and I felt strong myself, but I had no things in an outwardly way that you'd say, you know, geez, I'd marry that guy because like I, I had no savings. I had a debt from university. I had no job, didn't know what I was going to do. It was the middle of a financial crisis. And here I was saying to my fiance, I want to study this guy's work and start a charity. And I, I could see the, could see that a lot of people thought why don't you so you had a drive that's what you did have you had something burning inside you that felt this was the right route and 
that's it. Like the cycle felt right from the minute I started. Going to Canada felt right. This felt right because I said, this just is the next step because I knew that there was this crisis in mental health at the time with young people. At the time, Ireland had the high, fourth highest suicide rate in teenagers in Europe. And I just said to myself, like, okay, so there's a big problem. I'm looking, I was going into schools a lot of the time because of the cycle I was asked to go in. And so many young people would come up to me afterwards and say to me, you know, I'd love to do something in my life, but I just don't, don't have confidence or I'm from this area or I'm, I'm not one of those people that do things like you did. And I said, man, I, was, I wasn't one of those people that did anything. I was so afraid of the world as a teenager. So I had this sense that the school system wasn't filling their, the need or meeting or addressing the problem that I was reading about on the, on the mental health side. I knew they just weren't connecting. So I said, well, there's obviously a missing piece. And that sent me to Australia. All right. Gosh. And so you went to Australia and you did all the research and you came back and you set up an a organization called SOAR. And that's obviously you've seen thousands and thousands of teenagers over the years. I know my, my own daughter, Bobby, was involved and got so much from it. Just talk us through briefly what, you, what the whole organization was about and what you did. And I know it, it, the demographics spread far and wide here. So we're not just talk, we're talking about all walks of life, kids from the country, kids from the towns, well off, not so well off. Am I right in saying that? 100% right. Yeah. Because that was the beauty of Reach, Jim Science's organization was. It was for all young people regardless of their circumstances it was about creating a space which was safe in in so far as they didn't feel that they had to maintain a persona in that space room call it what you will so that they could begin to remember who they really are and very often that was by just expressing some of the difficult challenging periods in their life so that rather than hiding them or being embarrassed or ashamed them, they could own them and step through them and say this is me you know and the beauty about that is when, when that happens in a room, it's like something takes over and other people who've had the same experience, and especially for teenagers, because they're trying to fit in, even though they want to stand out, they're trying to just fit in and not get slagged or whatever. That's where the magic will, would happen in a sore workshop. Or as I saw the first time in Reach, I said, oh my God, that teenager is telling my story. When I was a teenager, he's self-conscious, he's unsure of himself, he hates school. You know, all he wants to do is play sport. His parents argue etc etc life and um, when I was in the reach workshop and I saw this I said that kid is gonna like he spoke say in this workshop in a country school and I thought to myself oh my god everyone's gonna burst out laughing and not one kid did everyone stood up and said I admire that because I never saw you as that you're the champion footy player and I can't believe that you don't believe in yourself and then it was like just a brush fire and I when I saw that I said this has to come back to Ireland and, and when we did, when we started running school workshops, teachers would come up afterwards and say, I haven't heard Jamie speak in three years. I didn't even know he could talk like that. And that, that girl across the room, I never knew she was going through that. So at its simplest, Jenny, what we did was at the beginning, it was myself and another guy called Carl. We'd go in and run the workshops. We'd try and just find a way to connect with the teenagers in the room about life um, and who they were and what some of their dreams or aspirations were. And Reach would have taught us some techniques and how to do that and accelerate that sense of safety and connection in the room in a way that didn't feel like, um, you know, where teenagers wouldn't go, oh, my God, this is embarrassing. And usually that was by Carl or I, usually me for some reason, being completely honest about where 
my where what I'd gone through. Like no holds barred, just as I had with you. And they related to even the toughest of kids who at the start of the workshop were like, you know, flicking the kids ear in front of them or laughing or messing. Sometimes they were actually the person in the workshop that made it happen because they were. And the vulnerability, because, you know, for kids, teenagers to open up like that, because in their heads, I'm sure they're thinking, oh, after this workshop, I have to go back into the room with these guys and, you know. Oh, everything that I've said, they're going to know about and it's all going to be out there. So yeah. it's wow that you created a space for that. Well, when you normalize human, human struggle, there's a, there's a kind of the person who goes first is like seen as the, the most heroic, most courageous person in the room. So you'll have a tough kid who's like, you know, goes home to get a beating each night and a kid steps, stands up who's maybe autistic or comes out as gay in the room or whatever it might be or might just say, look, I hate school because I come in every day and I just don't want anyone to see that I, I struggle at life. And the toughest kid in the room will hush everyone else and say, listen to them because they're looking for something real in their life. They know that life hits them hard at times and they don't want the bullshit. They don't want to be talked at. So when they see that level of kind of, as you say, vulnerability, it's like they respect it. So it's funny, the opposite happens. After the workshop, the kid that was the most vulnerable not now I'm looking for attention way, but in an authentic way, they get the most respect. And it's bizarre, even though we think that we get us the most harm. So we just like, the beauty of it was, it was young people that recommended SOAR to their friends in other schools. So it was usually by word of mouth for the first three years that we went from school to school. Um, and the, the challenge for SOAR was, it's a quite a specialized thing, as you can imagine. It looks easy, but it's very hard to do that on the day. A lot of training goes in, as Bobby would mm, Yeah. So to scale that is very challenging. Um, and it's something SOAR, nine years on, are still trying to, to do, is how to scale something like that. And so teenagers... Growing up, I'm just, I'm thinking of my own, obviously, just at the moment and, and the schools that they're in. And I just wonder, you know, for, 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 te- and I'm assuming you go through all of this in the book. Like, to me, it seems like I think I'd hate to be a teenager today. It's just, I mean, I think back to when I was a teenager and I found it hard enough, but that I didn't have phones and I didn't have, you know, and I'm constantly given out to Jed and get off that phone and get off, you know, what do you, having gone through all the experience, when you look at teenagers today, like are phones and screens and all that a, a huge concern for you when you think of your own kids? Or are we just, this is what we're saying about earlier, are we just panicking over something that we just need to accept? Yeah. You know? Like my five-year-old, his best friend has got into um, Minecraft and Jerome's coming home saying, yeah, he's, and I'm there, oh, I hope he doesn't go down that way. Because at the moment, he'd draw for three hours or he'd... Um, you know, he'd, he'd build Lego and stuff. And it's, you know that that's good for him. I'm no expert on the impact of screens and phones on, on, um, on teenagers, on brains and, and at all. But I say in the book, your parents are just as addicted to their phones as you are. You know, we all are. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think that I'd love to do an experiment where you just left them, let them alone, left them on their phone and see like a year, two years, three years on the road what happens. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know about the impact of phones. I know that if I'm on my phone too much, at the end of the day, I know I haven't had the best day I could have. I just haven't felt connected to myself. 
and the days I forget my phone or leave it somewhere, I feel better because I feel at home in myself. Um, and hopefully, hopefully teenagers will start to use their phone less, but I don't know. I don't have an answer to that one. I just don't know the impact it has. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think, having gone through it all with all the different groups, because you have possibly the, the, the kids that are in like the good schools, you know, mm. and the, the parents are thinking, you know, my Johnny or my Jed or whatever wouldn't behave like this or, you know, but actually behind the scenes, they're all, are, are they all going through the same torment? Let's talk about the different demographics yeah. and what that means. Yeah. Like, yes, I think they are. Um, I think that. And do we you, actually put more pressure on them then? It depends what you define as pressure. Pressure to mm. do more. Pressure to be really good at school. Um, yeah. I think the school system does a lot of damage. So oh, totally agree. Yeah. Um, and you know, I have met so many amazing teachers, like teachers that stay back for hours afterwards that would do anything for the kids in their class. And I've met a lot of teachers who took it because it was a handy job. And you can see the minute you know the difference. Well, I used to know the difference. Anyways, when I say you had a group of teenagers, when the teacher walked in, I'd know the minute they walked in, like as in 15 seconds later, whether or not the young people felt comfortable with that teacher. And usually if they did, that teacher was the one who really cared about them and the teenagers knew it as versus the teenage teacher who walked in and the kids would clam up, they'd shut down. And I talked to that teacher and usually that teacher was of a, of a different approach with how they worked with the teenager. <laughs> um, so are they all going through the same level of suffering? Okay. So the spectrum is if you have a kid in a, uh, and I talk about it in the book, like, you know, we're all born equal, but we're not born into equal worlds. You know, a, a teenager who's born in a less, say, affluent family, they're not born into the same world as a kid who's born into a more affluent family because they're not going to necessarily have the same opportunities to do what they perhaps are capable of because, because of the way society is set up to an extent. And um, that doesn't mean, though, that they're going to, that suffering doesn't visit everyone to different extents. It, it doesn't. So, you know, like I would have met kids in private schools who maybe they, they never saw their parents because the parents were really busy financially working across the world or they had no sense of, they had everything, but they didn't have the thing they wanted most. And I met kids in um, schools that, you know, they may not have had enough furniture. And, and like these schools were like doing their best with what they had. And some of the kids there, their parents were their heroes because they'd bring them out with their horses. Or, you know, I remember being in a school in Limerick, you laugh at this one. And uh, I had a facilitator from Australia with me. And he, and he and I went to this school. Now, it was a school for, there was only four of them in the country, where there was like 11 pupils in this class. Now, the next stop after this, if it doesn't work out for a lot of these kids, is prison. You know, they're in the system and mm -hmm. they're not working out in their school, in mainstream schools. And they're sent to these schools, which are really just like, a daycare facility in some ways, trying to do their best to get these kids to adulthood and teach them some life skills. So I walked in and we walk in, we're in the workshop and I can see that kids are like, just, they're not even listening to like they're talking to each other. And one of them's like on his phone, other guys rolling, rolling smoke. Like we're not even in the, we're not even in their world, but I know they're, they're, I, they're clocking us and they're figuring us out. So, um, a few minutes into the workshop, we got talking about things that make us feel alive. Like the world just stops moving for a while with no worry, with no fear. It's just, you just feel alive um, in the best possible way. And one kid talked about how it's his horse, his horses. You know, he says, when I'm with my horse, I don't feel anger. I don't feel like I want to smash someone's 
facing. I just feel like I can be myself. I'm safe. And I said, geez, I'd love to see your horse. And I was serious. I was like, <laughs> I'd love to see this horse. And he said, um, I'll take you. And he turned uh-huh. around to the teacher, who was a great guy, and said, can we take these two lads to see the horses? And the teacher was, geez, I don't know. Uh, well, maybe go on with the <laughs> workshop for another while. And then we'll see, hoping the kid would forget. And we went on with the workshop for the 10 or 15 minutes. And the kid was getting impatient. And eventually he starts tapping the table and goes, come on, are you coming to see the horse or not? So I said, I'd love to see the horse. So they brought us to this housing estate and uh, in this bus. We're on the bus. And that's, to your point, that's when I start to get to know these kids. You know, I was just sitting in the midst of them and we were chatting away. And they were there, oh, your accents, you're some redneck, your accent and all this. And um, how lanky are you? Like, you're like so tall and all this. And then... Uh, we just got to take the slags. Oh yeah, I was just taking it on. I knew, I knew that was a great compliment, you know, and uh, that they were willing to. So we stopped at this house, and I thought we were going to collect someone. And this kid jumps out. I say kid, he was like seventeen, and uh, and he walks in the back of the house. And I was kind of asking them. I asked the other guys, where, where where is he going? Is he going to get another or someone else? And they said, No, no, he's going to get the horse. So next thing he comes out from the side of the house, pulling this beautiful piebald pony. Oh, hilarious. And uh, we all get out and he jumps up bareback, tears off down the, the street, like the housing state, comes back. And then they all look at me and goes, your turn. And I said, what? They said, it's your turn. And I said, well, I was like, go on the horse. And they said, yeah. And it was like, I knew they were testing me to see, is this guy actually for real? Is he just some, another, another adult that's well-intentioned? So I said, yeah, okay, cool. And I jumped up, I was petrified, and went off down to this green. And they said, go down the road. You'll see a green in your right. Turn there and come back again. So I went down to the green. I jumped off there and I stood for like five or 10 minutes because I said, I'll I'll have a bit of crack with these guys too because they they all thought I'd fallen off. (laughs) I came riding up the thing, like holding on for dear life. And they were all clapping and hooping. And then they said to my Aussie friend, now you're next. He'd never been in a horse. He jumps up. But I, the reason I tell you the story is because it was just amazing to see that those kids, once we found what meant something to them and what brought them joy, what kind of alleviated the suffering that at times they were going through. You know, it didn't matter that we were from different worlds. or that. And was that because, because I'm just thinking back to what you said earlier about, you know, the, the different de- demographics. So, you know, is that because you were wanting to spend time, do you think? Yeah, and, and, I, and I wasn't seeing them as they know the world sees them. And I asked them, I asked them to judge yeah. me, like I told you. And then I said, now, how do people judge you? And they said, like, and I, and I say this, because these are the words they use, you know, knackers. Of course, uh, yes. All the things, you know, wasters, shit, never be any good. And, like, when we were come back in the bus, we dropped them at their houses. And, like... You know, it's not that I grew up in in affluence or anything like that. By all means, I didn't. But I didn't think that in Ireland there were houses like some of the houses those kids went into. And I just thought to myself, how heroic are they to be coming to schools, trying their best, minding each other? Because they really minded each other in the group. I said to myself, like, they're so heroic. And I think when I walked into the workshop, I didn't see them as what maybe the labels they are used to. I was just interested in their story. I didn't mm. shit what they look like or what. So, so what happens do you think along the way? So you have these guys you're talking about, they're 17. So somewhere along the way, you know, they were classed as this, mm. you're saying knackers, whatever, yeah. you know, we all see kids hanging around and you might have a perception of 
you know, where they're from or who they are, you know, and then you have the kids that are going to the great school and, and, and they can equally end up the same way. What, what happens do you think? Is it, because I do, I'm really, you know, as I said at the beginning, just trying to understand and as a kid, what they're going through and, and all you want is to, is for your kids to, you say, oh, to be happy and grow up and all that. But really you want them to grow up. You want them to be kind is mm. I, I think one mm. of the most important. And somewhere along the way, they're trying to fit in. I'm assuming. I'm assuming yeah. that's a thing you see across the board, no matter. Yeah. Like the most insecure kid in the class is the one that's sometimes the loudest and some and usually trying to fit in the most. You know, but they're so insecure. Like they, that's, I think, where what happens is. But is that coming from home? That's, I guess, what I'm wondering. Because obviously, you know, and what you said earlier about parents and traveling and working and no time and all this. So we're living in these fabulously big houses, but at the end of the day, there's no communication going on. Mm. Like, do you think that that's more detrimental than the people that are, your man has the horse in the back garden, but clearly something is definitely going right there for him because he's going every day, he's, he's trying. Or what do you think? You wrote this book. Yeah, I, I can see, I wrote the book. It's funny, like I wrote the book for teenagers because mm. I want to kind of reassure them that um, that life like one of the chapters in the book is called hard times and it's about that like whether you're in an affluent you know the big house you talk about or you're from an area that's that's seen as the very opposite to that um you're going to go through hard times you know and your life is going to be difficult at times your parents are going to have difficult periods in life you're going to lose your granny the amount of teenagers when i ask them who's your favorite person in the world they'd say my granny because i'm never i never feel like she's judging me i never feel like she's going to say you know, that's stupid. She just listens to me. But um, parents, but they feel the parents are judging them. Very often they do. Yeah. And uh, that's where teenagers have an amazing radar. They'll tell you so much. They'll show you so much as they think you will be able to handle. And they'll stop short just of what they know you'll judge. Um, and if they feel that you're going to judge them, and let's be honest, nearly all of us have judgments of our parents or sorry, of our kids to some extent, like we're like, oh, I wish they weren't like that. I wish they were a little bit like this. And it's like teenagers have an antennae for judgment because they're so afraid of being judged day to day in schools that they have this like radar for when they're judged and they'll kind of change your behavior to stay safe. So what happens is a good question. I think one of the things that happens is we, we grow up almost as strangers to ourselves and we don't really know who we are unless perhaps something seismic happens like a divorce or a death or you know, a job loss. And then we kind of have to look at who are we and who am I really? And is this life I'm living by choice, by design? Um, and then what does that mean for the, my, my, my sense of peace with myself? Whereas, so I think what happens teenagers like us all is, you know, our adult population are the most medicated population in the history of, of the state. For a reason, you know, there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty, but I think like, Kids start out to varying and differing degrees and um, almost like able for the world. But then as things go on, they aren't able for the world. And that's where a lot of the suffering begins. And where does that come from? I do think we're completely and utterly missing an opportunity to educate our young people early about who they actually are so that when they get to that life challenge, that life challenge might be at 12, 14, mm. 8, who knows? that they're able to navigate it rather than for it to set in, in tow kind of things that become real issues that may take years, a lifetime 
to be resolved. Are you talking about if something really huge is to happen throughout their childhood? Yeah. So like, you know, you obviously have things like abuse and, you know, lots of kids who, you know, had been through abuse or a a family member had as a child. And like, you know, that's horrendous. How do you overcome that? That takes a lot of healing. But I think just in general, we don't send our teenagers, our children out into the world with an understanding of the one subject they are going to need, which is who am I Mm. Um, in such a way that they can navigate life with more, you know, they can author their own life rather than being the kind of the victims to a script written outside of their control. Now I write about that in the book a good bit. And that's where I really wanted it to be is, you know, to teenagers. And that's why it might piss off a lot of their parents is your parents may not have a clue who they are. It's not their fault. I was just going to say, how, uh, how are they supposed to know when we yeah. have an rashers? Exactly. Exactly. And you look at the school system. I'd say it hasn't changed hugely since you or I were going through it. And yet we're still sending teenagers through the same type of school. And I am amazed at how many are dropping out. Yeah. You know, in the last two weeks, two parents have contacted me saying, how do I get my son or daughter to go to school? Um, and it's a, it's a big, big problem. We, we yeah. had that problem with our middle fella just, you know, just didn't want to go. And yeah. even though actually he really loved the school and the teachers were, were great, but he just didn't, couldn't connect with the educational system himself. Yeah. He just felt like, oh, he just felt like he wasn't learning. And, and I wonder, you know, like you say, we don't know who we are as, as parents. And then as parents, we, we're probably never like even if the child is in the room and we're chatting, we're probably not actually in the room with them. We're thinking about, have they done their homework? What are they going to do next week? What are they going to, you know, and, and they can probably feel that a mile off. We're, we're constantly thinking, you know, if, when if Johnny can get the good results, it'll all be marvelous. When really in reality, that's bullshit. Sorry, excuse the language. No, but it's, it's, it's so true in so many ways because, you know, you think about, if you think about, as you just said, like we, we've got to plan what we're to do and we want the best from all that. But like, it's like, and again, this is in the book, but it's like we place our ladder against the wall, which is get Johnny the points. They climb the ladder and maybe they look out when they get to the top of it and realize it was against the wrong wall all along. So mm-hmm. I often think to myself, like, so when the parents that do ring me say, well, how do I get Johnny to go to school? Um, and I often play a game with them. And I say, okay, Let's play a worst case scenario. What if Johnny doesn't go to school? Well, geez, he won't get the leaving. Okay, he doesn't get the leaving. And what happens then? Well, geez, he'll never get into any college. Okay, and what happens then? Well, geez, he'll end up working down at Spar. Okay. <laughs> okay, and what's the worst thing about that? Well, sure, that's a disaster. And then I'd say, well... Oh, it's not about the child. It's all about the parents thinking. Yeah. It's all about how you know, it's a disaster for them. Yeah, totally. I often say, to, last question I ask them, what do, your, what do you think your mom or dad will think of your Johnny working in Spar? And they go, what? How do you mean? At this stage, they want to just hang up. Like I say, what do you think your mom or dad will think of that? Oh, Jesus, it's about me, isn't it? I'll be ashamed of my son. And I, I'll, oh, Jesus. And the penny drops. It's more about them than it is about their kid. Because really, if Johnny doesn't finish the leaving, that is not the end of the world. If Johnny finishes leaving and he doesn't know how to manage his anxiety or he's, he doesn't understand what makes him come alive and what makes him happy, that's a problem. And is that something you're seeing more and more of? So nah. obviously we're talking teenagers all the way up to 19 and then, and then mm. a couple of years after mental health, yeah. they're doing really well in school. These are the ones that are doing really well in school because obviously we're, we're covering all demographics here. Uh, the stress then, 
massive. Like, geez, I was in a home last night and lovely parents, really lovely family. You walk in the door of the house, it just felt like a nice home. And their son isn't going to school and for a lot of the reasons we've mentioned. And I just thought to myself that poor parents, um, it's very, it's up and down the country, Jenny. Like, you know, because you mentioned how you kind of went through a version of it yourself. It is so rampant at the moment. I'm just so worried. It's just, it, and, and, and now that actually we've gone through it, Jake, uh, you know, well, he obviously didn't sit the leaving with COVID, but he was all set to sit the leaving. Mm. And, you know, he got what he wanted in the end uh, in terms of what he wanted to study. And, and it was creative music, you know, which makes total sense. That was his passion and got him through. But at the time we were so worried so worried. We just, oh my God, what if, if, he, if this doesn't happen, it's going to be the end of the world. When really in reality, if you'd asked me as a mom, all I wanted to know was that he was okay and that he wasn't, yeah. you know, suffering in terms of like, was he being bullied or was there drugs or, you know, yeah. that was the really, I was terrified, you know? Yeah. So w- what did you say last night? Sorry. And I know you can't obviously talk about who it was, but how do you begin to help? And is this, you, you, or, and the book obviously goes through this as well yeah. in some yeah. ways. So really the book is, if you think, if you go back to your own school days, like you'd maths and you'd science and all, you'd all these subjects, which are important. But I say in the, book, in the book, you know, we fill teenagers' heads with loads of information and we forget to teach them or even create the space so they could learn for themselves about the most important thing they need for the rest of their lives themselves. And um, so the book is that. It's, it's kind of one day hopefully it'll be on the curriculum because it's, it's a... It's meant to be a tool for a teenager to understand who they are so that the Jake's this world can realize, I'm not the problem. The fact that this school system is so lazy and doesn't um, understand that I am not the same as every other kid in here and, and curate my learning appropriately, they're the problem. And then he doesn't feel like his self-esteem is because I can't fit into this system. So the book is kind of meant for to meet any teenager where they're at and help them continue to figure out who they are and become comfortable and confident in that. So then they start life from there. So to answer your question with the young guy last night, I said to him at the end, I said, that was the most enjoyable conversation I've had in six months. And it was because, you you know, his parents made us tea and then they went into the living room and we just sat in the kitchen and chatted, uh, you know, the length of this island apart. And, um, yeah, the guy's in a very hard, dark place at the moment, very much so. And all we did was talk about life, but not like about football, about like, um, I was straight out. Oh, I said, you're in a very dark place at the moment. He goes, yeah. I said, are you scared? He said, very. Sometimes I think I'll never come back from this. And I wasn't going to sugarcoat it for him and, and pretend we're all good here. Um, and then he says, do you know much about this dark place? And I told him about my experience. And then we just had a chat and we laughed. And, and by the end of it, he wasn't looking down the ground anymore. He was looking at my eyes and I was looking at his eyes. And um, I'm hoping the book will kind of do that. A little bit of humor. Um, so it's like, it, it's, it's about connection in some yeah. level. And, and obviously as parents, you know, we're, we're trying probably too much. Maybe we should just be falling a bit quieter some of the time, uh, you know, and letting them speak. Um, you know, and for all you spoke to this guy last night, but for, I'm sure there's many more that, that won't have an opportunity to speak to somebody like you. So it's, it's, God, it's scary really, isn't it? When you think of all the kids that, you know, and, and you think as a parent, you're going to get them through school and they'll do well and they'll even start or not or whatever. But, but now the problems are actually starting 
at the after school when they go into adult life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like the 75% of serious mental health uh, problems arise between 18 to 25 you know, and, and, but they have their, their origins usually earlier in teens, like, you know, our son's going through primary school and it's, it's such a positive experience, primary schools now in Ireland, um, much more, um, than they were, but our secondary school system has not changed, uh, and announced in the way that it needs to. Um, and I don't know, is that because the government have been, haven't had the backbone to actually implement some of the changes or that the unions are too big and powerful and won't let them, or the training of teachers isn't meeting the needs. But we don't need teachers. We need facilitators. We don't, we don't need to teach any more curriculum. It's all there for kids if they want it. And what we do need is a way for teenagers to use that window in their lives to learn, to awaken to who they really are and, and become comfortable with that and grounded in that. Then the world is literally there, the master of their own universe. We're, and, yeah, and, and maybe it's not... So just listen to you there, because in some households, it might not be, you know, that might not be possible, what you're saying in terms of openness and all that, um, you know, and it has to happen in school or should happen in school and it should start in primary. I mean, have you ever been in a situation, and you have to be honest now, where you've just wanted to shake somebody and go, Jesus, oh, if you could only do X, Y, Z, be it to parents, teachers, or, you know, and you know yourself because you've seen so many different teenagers that this could work. What would that be? Well, it depends who you're saying about shaking. Like, I remember we were in a workshop in, and at the end, the teacher, I think he was a vice principal, came in and he just laid, and he has to, obviously, he's got the, well, he doesn't have to, but I can see why he's doing it. He needs structure. But he came in and laid down the law, moved the chairs, and just to see where the kids were, I say kids, but like teenagers, five minutes before, which was open, honest, wise, and accepting and oh. uh, not judging together, you know, like as in, you know, let him speak. We want to hear more. We haven't heard from you. Why haven't you spoken? We want, what's your story? You know, from that to closed, free, authoritarian, authoritarian, just do what he says. And I just wanted to run across the room and knock the guy. Gosh, you're, you're, you're up against it then really, aren't you? Well, it's like, you know, it's, I definitely don't have all the answers, but one thing I've come to understand is the importance of connection and for, you know, pain and potential come to the same door. So if you open yourself up to connect with someone, there's, there's a chance of pain, but there's a huge chance of potential as well as something that you will have a, a connection. And um, I just don't know, do we know how to connect? So go back, it goes back to what you're saying about, there's a lot more talk about mental health, but I don't know, have we taken the next step, which is how do you connect? Well, there needs to be a certain amount of, you know, intimacy, which is intimacy, like where you are comfortable yes. with the other person to see into you. Now, for that to happen, you have to be comfortable with yourself. That's what we're not teaching. And until we do, we're going to have a continuation of lack of connection or absence of connection, which leads to things like loneliness, which leads to all the other things. And do you not think that that kind of thing is just going to get worse with the way, you know, back to the screens and phones and looking down all the time. Yeah. Do you know? Well, sometimes looking down is much safer than looking in mm. and at yourself. And it's a distraction. Um, and adults, myself, all of us, we, we are good at distracting ourselves from ourselves because we don't, we don't really know how to be at home ourselves. Um, and 
that's why I think that window of teenage years, if we got it, um, I often say if I won the Euro Millions, I'd love to open a school where all we taught was connection and whatever you want to learn. So if you want to be a mathematician, we'll get you the best math teacher in the world. But if all you want to do is create art, let's create you a studio. And just mm-hmm. see what happens. Um, but uh, just going back to what you were saying, it's um, I think everyone is doing their best, even that teacher that came in and, and put them all back in their boxes. He's doing his best. Do you ever do groups with the teachers without the students as a matter of interest? Well, like the te- kids would have always, the teenagers would always say, can we get rid of Miss Murphy? Like they come up to me. Yeah. No, I mean, do you ever just do, before you see the kids, do you, do you take a group of teachers and bring them through what you're doing on their no. own? No, and like, you know, there's a new CEO at SOAR who, who we were so lucky to get and have. Um, but I know they have ambitions to do teacher training. And a lot of this comes back to resources, but teacher training so that teachers could um, learn more about and also have a space for they themselves. Because imagine going in and teaching five days a week in schools where, you know, you're not adequately trained for what you're meeting. There's kids coming in that have needs that you do not know how to meet. Yeah, you're trying to get them to focus and learn about like Pythagoras. I mean, as a parent, I feel like I'm drowning half the time. So as a teacher of 30 kids, I can't even imagine. Yeah. I mean, is there a common denominator, do you think, across the board? So you have been, you know, you've been dealing with teachers in Ireland, Australia, Canada, you've tons of experience. And maybe this is a ridiculous question, but is there, if you put them all together, is there something that unites them all in terms of this is what they're missing you know how does johnny end up on drugs how does i don't know louise end up stealing from the shop down do you know what i mean what, what is it i just got you know i keep asking you what's the what's the million dollar question yeah. to, to well, get in behind them it's it's and it's a great question it's one that you could spend a lot of time trying to find answers to but like there's there's things like love like teenagers know when the teacher at the top of the room is not judging them and has enough self-comfort like they they're comfortable with themselves for whatever reason they've had a hard time they've had to work on themselves or they were just born comfortable in their own skin mm. that classroom teenagers will go to and um, because they know they'll just feel something they'll feel seen which i found was the one thing everyone wants especially young people even though they don't want to be seen they do want to be they want to be seen for who they really are uh, and past the persona and the performance they put on to kind of keep everyone at bay but you know if someone's in pain you'll do anything to alleviate that pain. So if the pain is boredom, if the pain is rejection, you know, why wouldn't you take drugs to, go, to get away from that pain? Like it mm-hmm. makes sense at an at a, at a, at a animalistic level to just alleviate your pain. And um, the common denominator, I think, is, is that whole acceptance part. If, um, if we, do you think it's d- down to parents though as well? Yeah, but the parents are doing their best, but they don't. I keep going back to it, but they don't know who they are. I say that in the book. Of course. They, and actually, you're right. Sorry. We did do a podcast recently about that. Yeah. So it, it's kind of, if they don't know who they are, then how can the kids? And it's They're, so often parents ring me and I end up meeting them. And then, then I meet the kid with them and, or I meet the kid in their own and sit at the kitchen table. And then the parent comes back in and I say, whoa, they changed. They changed. They closed back down. Why is that? And I don't have the answers, but it's intriguing for me that a lot of the parents that I meet, it's their anxieties that need to be dealt with. You know, why, why isn't Caroline more fit? She's putting on weight. I'm concerned about that. What's the worst thing if Caroline puts on weight and doesn't, maybe she doesn't like exercise. Now that you say it, she does, she did paint her whole bedroom herself with art. 
maybe she's not sporty. But the parents have expectations of what the kids should be. You know, and I think that's very often where a lot of the anxiety arises because a teenager knows they're being judged by the parent. Of course. For not course. being what they want them to be. And, you know, as the parent as well, you, you think back to your own childhood in terms of like, oh gosh, I didn't do this or I didn't do that. And I'm going to make sure that my children get it all. Yeah. And, and you do wonder whether that's just ridiculous, really, because then they're not getting to live their own lives and they're living it through us. And, and it goes back to where we started. Trust the kid to know like that's where we underestimate sometimes they're able for more they're more resourceful and more resilient obviously if they're self-harming or there's something really bad going on you need to intervene you're the adult but in the in day-to-day life trust them they feel your trust you may need to deal with why you can't trust them what you're afraid of in the world but if you can it's amazing how they kind of flourish without much tending from you and um, because yeah. they're finding their own way and they'll need to know for the rest of life you're not going to be around and they'll make mistakes, and that's grand. Didn't we? So isn't that how we all learn? Yeah. So maybe we could just like back off a little bit and let them find out who they are in this period that that's what they're supposed to be doing. So um, how can how can teenagers get a hand on this book? Because I know parents could probably come across it easily enough, but how are you going to? Because it's coming out in December, is that right? Yeah, so it's, we're going to have advanced copies in December to send to people who've already asked for it or that we'd like to read to get their, their um, view on it. But February 18th is when it will launch in shops. Like Okay. And will it be going into schools? So my dream for it is that it's used as a piece of curriculum for the TY program because it's a perfect kind of antidote to what I think could be in the TY year without SOAR having to come to your school because that's not going to happen for every school necessarily. Is it even happening now with COVID and everything? Well, they, they are going into schools, yeah, even with COVID. Um, and, uh, and, and hopefully the book will be something that teachers will say, look, this is yours to you because the teenager can use it themselves. Each chapter yes. is for them to use. Um, and like this, the last chapter was on death. So that'll give you... <laughs> and I don't say, here are the five stages of grieving. I tell a story between a five-year-old and a five-month-old about what they think uh, death is and where we go when we die. Um, so then the teenager reads that and it's for them to figure out their version of that. Yeah. Make sense of it. Wow, gosh. It, it, it's, I ha- well, I know you sent me through and I, was, I, was, I didn't have time to obviously read it all, but it, the bits I did, really, really interesting. My, my issue will be getting the child to read it. So, you know, the way if, if I'm pushing something, it'll be a case of I'm not reading that. So that's why I'm wondering what's the, how, how can we get them? Is it just leaving it around? Yeah. And like the, some of the people were targeting on Instagram and that young people, the teenagers follow them. So we're hoping that if it resonates with that, that person that that's being followed by 100,000 teenagers, then maybe that would be a way. But we're going to look at all different ways. Like we'll have an audio book, but we're going to look at a huge amount of diverse ways, maybe breaking the book into segments and just sharing that online so that young people will come across it. And then if they, and we, look, the, the kids that we met with the pony, they're probably not going to read the book and yet maybe their teacher will and understand them better. That's it. That's it. Gosh, it's brilliant. Thank you so much, Tony, for taking the time today. So nice to see you. Yeah, you too.